Amen. Thank you. I'm going to steal this. Swoop. Hey, I'm Chris. I am on staff with InterVarsity at Amherst College, and it is a, a pleasure to get to share from God's Word with you this morning. Um, for those of you who have been here, you know that we're studying the book of Judges, and this is our series, Hero Series. So we're looking at the heroes, the judges that God sends to the nation of Israel to help them free them from bondage, defeat their enemies. And um, in the last four weeks or so, seems like about four weeks, we've been studying the life of Gideon. So this will be the fifth or so sermon in the life of Gideon. Um, and it's the second to last one. But for those of you who haven't been here, or even if you have, let me just catch you up on where the story has been, like what we've seen. Gideon's story starts with an angelic visitation. It says the angel of the Lord comes to him while he's threshing wheat. And um, Gideon himself exclaims, I, I just got to talk to the angel of the Lord face to face. Crazy start to his walk with God. And then Gideon stands up for the Lord, and the Lord defends him when he tears down the altars of Baal and Asherah. Um, it says that Gideon has been clothed with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon Gideon. Gideon has seen God work powerfully. He's even put God to the test in certain ways. So last week we heard the story of the fleece, which you probably familiar with if you've been in church some, uh, where Gideon says, God, if, if you're with me, make the fleece wet, but keep the ground dry, and God does it, and God, Gideon's like, oh God, please one more time, don't destroy me, let me just test you one more time, I don't really believe you, and he does it, and God does it again. There's a way in which God is sort of like pandering to Gideon's faithlessness and bringing him along this whole time. God has showed up in so many powerful ways. And then in the last week's sermon, um, you heard Gideon, Gideon's force gets reduced, God sort of just pulls apart Gideon's army. So Gideon has 32,000 fighting men going to come against the Midianites, and God says, no, no, it's too big. And so Gideon goes to the men, God, after God's command, Gideon goes to the men and says, in, it's, verse, it's chapter 7, verse 3, it says, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 people leave. So Gideon is, is saying, if, you're not, if you don't have a heart for the battle, if you're afraid, just leave. And 22,000 dudes desert. So 10,000 remain, and then God does the weird thing with the drinking water, remember? They lap it up like dogs. God's like, I like lapping people. <laughs> and so now the, the army force is down to 300, which brings us to today's scripture when God says, finally, go. Go to war. It's uh, Verse 9, it says, that same night, after separating the forces, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. So here comes a direct commandment from God. Wake up, Gideon. Get the men ready. It's time to go to battle. It's time to go to war. And it comes with a promise. I've given you victory. It's not just a commandment, but I'll be with you. I've given them into your hands. Verse 10, though, God says, But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So notice what's happening here. Gideon is afraid. How do I know Gideon's afraid? Well, because God says, go down to the camp, but if you're afraid, go do this other thing. And Gideon goes and does the other thing. So Gideon is scared. He's afraid. And he takes God up on the offer. Verse 11, he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. So fearful Gideon makes use of God's little opportunity, and he goes down with his buddy Pura, 
Just notice the, the, the God's language here. He said, God says, go, it's time to fight, but if you're afraid, grab your buddy Pura, go down to the camp. And Gideon is reluctant and afraid enough that he takes God up on the offer. He's afraid. How? How could Gideon be afraid after all that he's seen? Right? He's seen the angel of the Lord. He's talked to the angel of the Lord face to face. He's been clothed with the Spirit. He's seen God move in miraculous ways, even at his own asking. And now God gives a command, and he's afraid. He's paralyzed with fear. He's reluctant to obey. Why? Well, what makes us so hesitant? What makes us so reluctant to obey, so fearful? In an honest assessment, how many of us are courageously living in obedience to Jesus day to day? Courageously pushing back the darkness by stepping out in faith. Courageously fighting sin in our own lives in costly ways. The truth is, I feel this in my own heart. I, I resonate with Gideon. Because a lot of the time, I'll be just devoted enough to Jesus that people notice but don't think I'm weird. Like right in that sweet spot. <laughs> and the truth is that in the moment when it's time to be obedient and, the, and God has said, go do this, or you feel a prompting in your spirit that says, go talk to that person or go ask that person if you can pray for them or go forgive that person or you need to confess what you've done and ask for forgiveness from that person. It's hard to be obedient in that moment. When God says, tell the truth about what you're struggling with. That's tough. It's actually a fearful thing. What will happen if people really knew? If I actually confess the sin? In that moment, it's a struggle to believe that God's purposes, God's promises are actually a better way to live. So often, like Gideon I'll be motivated by a sermon or a worship night or a prayer meeting where God is speaking, but a couple days later or even a day later, motivation's worn off. And it's hard to walk in obedience courageously day to day because the prospect of fighting sin day to day is burdensome. It's even frightful. You think, how, how could I tell the truth about that? How could I bring that up? Or what would happen to our family if we were really obedient to be that generous? Or if I stand up for that group of people, what will my friends think? If I stand up against this injustice, what will this group of people think? The truth is that God has called us, this community, to rise up against injustice, to fight sin and push back the darkness in this valley. To be an alternative city where hope is offered and the values of the world are flipped on their head. Where people receive justice and mercy where we work for interpersonal reconciliation, offering forgiveness to those who have wronged us, proclaiming the good news to our neighbors, and struggling for holiness against sin and temptation in our own lives. But so often that's not our story. How are we doing with that? Because the truth is, just like Gideon, we've heard the word preached. Most of you have been here on Sunday before. You've worshiped God. Many of you have professed faith in Jesus. You've been baptized. We've been cleansed, right? I, like many of you, went into the water proclaiming my death to the world, proclaiming that I would no longer live for the pleasures of sin, but instead for God's purposes. And yet, week to week, that's not always my story. It doesn't always feel like victory. And if we're really honest, after living in fear and faithlessness for so long, it can be hard to hope that victory would ever come. 
It can be hard to hope that that sin struggle that you keep falling into, that temptation that you just can't seem to beat, it's hard to hope that that would ever really lose its grip on you. And it's hard to motivate a struggle to fight it when it seems like it's just owning you over and over again. So it's not just that we're, we're faithless but, and afraid, but we actually become hopeless in it. How many of us actually have a longing and a belief that transformation will come in our own hearts and transformation will actually come in this valley? So the truth is, I can, I think we can really relate naturally to Gideon's situation. Speaking from my own experience, I don't think it's that we're apathetic about sin. It's not that we don't care about sin. Most of us agree that sin is harmful, that sin is, sin is destructive. We want to be rid of it. It's not that we're apathetic. It's more that we're just ambivalent. We equivocate. We're hot and cold about it. We want to fight it some days, Sundays, and then we don't want to fight it during the week. By Thursday night or Saturday night, motivation's worn off. So in worship, we say, Lord, have your way. But midweek, we say, did God really say? And it wears off. The truth is that even though we've trusted in the Lord, even though we've been clothed with the Spirit, even though we've seen and felt him do powerful things in and around us, it's hard to be obedient to Jesus. It's hard to trust the Lord and to step out in faith and obey him. So here's the question that drives the sermon. Is there hope for us? Is there hope for people like Gideon, these would-be warriors who are afraid to step into obedience? How does God deal with us in that space? And can we live in victory? Let me pray, and actually join me in praying, and then we'll uh, dive into the scriptures. Lord, we just come before you weak, and we admit that we're kind of half-hearted soldiers for you. And in this space, I invite you to pray for the person to your right and to your left, and ask that God would meet them and encourage them. And then would you also pray for yourself, admitting weakness, even like confronting the, the ways where you've disappointed yourself and asking that God would speak and encourage. And pray for me. Lord, I need your help. I just ask that you would help me communicate clearly, Lord, that your glory and goodness and grace would be obvious. Pray that you would exalt Jesus in this place. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so what happens to Gideon, this faithless, fearful soldier? How does God deal with him? There are three ways we're going to see in the text that God meets these, us and Gideon who are afraid. The first is, we already read the verse, but verse 9 and 10. Um, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. See, God could have written Gideon off immediately. His fear alone is condemnable, right? God says, go, but if you're afraid, I'll encourage you first. So hear this. No matter where you are with God, no matter what last night looked like, or whether or not you've committed to following Jesus, God doesn't condemn the fearful or faithless. He doesn't write us off when we doubt. Think of the story of Peter, right, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his most zealous defenders, who at the Last Supper swore up and down, Lord, I will never forsake you. I will never betray you. And Jesus is looking at him like, dude, I'm God. I'm telling you, you're going to betray me. And Peter 
over and over again. It says, surely not I, right? And then what happens? When Jesus is on trial and being cruci- and crucified, Peter three times says, I never knew that guy. That's not my friend. I'm not his disciple. Outright distancing himself from Jesus. And look how Jesus meets him, right? After the resurrection, Jesus could have said, Peter, I told you. Why did, why did you argue with me? Or how could you do this? Peter, you swore. But he doesn't. He makes breakfast for Peter. He says, come eat with me. See, God draws in failures. He says, come to me and I'll, I'll bake you a meal. I'll make you food. I want to sit with you. I want to eat, you. eat with you. I <laughs> don't want to eat you. <laughs> Jesus invites Peter in to have breakfast with him. So the truth is that just like, just in this story and for us, God knows that we're scared. God knows that Gideon's afraid, but he loves Gideon too much to leave him discouraged and hopeless. And the same is true for us. God wants to encourage us. He doesn't blow past our failures on the way toward his purposes. He wants to bring us along. He loves us too much not to equip us to fight sin. So when we're afraid, when we're weak, God wants to meet us. He wants to strengthen us. Go down to the camp and you'll hear what they say and afterward your hands will be strengthened. Gideon experiences God's grace in the midst of his fear. That's the first thing. But it's not just grace. Gideon sees God's greatness. Look with me in verse 13. It says, When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What? What? God says, Gideon, go down there. And so Gideon takes his buddy Pura, and they walk down to the camp, and they come upon, I guess probably sneakily, not being seen, but a conversation. They get to overhear this conversation that's happening. And think of the sovereignty of God in this for a second. God says, Gideon, go. So that's happening over here. Over here, God has already given this man a dream, which is a stunning display of sovereignty, spoken into the unconscious mind of this unbeliever. This is not a Yahweh worshiper. God is speaking into the dream of a Midianite and then prompts that man to speak and share his dream in the, in the midst of the hearing of, his, of a comrade. And then the comrade comes up with the most insanely specific and random interpretation. God is Lord over all of these circumstances, orchestrating it so that Gideon would see his power. One commentator says, Oh, the sovereignty of God who holds the minds and tongues of every person in his hand. He's orchestrating these events with such sovereign power. The dream itself is amazing, stunning, that he can move the thoughts of men. But then the fact that the other Midianite dude interprets it to be Gideon makes no sense unless God is prompting that thought. And then he orchestrates all of that so that Gideon would encounter it. At the same time, it's just mind-blowing. And Gideon gets to step into seeing not just that God cares for him, not, not just God's grace, but God's sovereign power, God's greatness. And it's not just that God is gracious. It's not just that God is great. Gideon sees that God is good. And not abstractly good, not impersonally good, not good as like a characteristic of who God is, but good for Gideon. See, this stunning display of God's sovereignty is arranged just for Gideon's encouragement. God orchestrates this whole thing just so that Gideon would know and be encouraged that God is with him. 
And actually, if you look at the whole story of Gideon's life, this narrative is for God's glory, no doubt, but there's a sense in which it is for Gideon as well. Like, look at, at their, their triumphant battle cry is a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Because if, if you reflect on what God is doing here, right, if his, if his only intention was to get the Midianites out of there, he could have done it infinitely other ways, right? He could have sent fire, he could have flooded them, he could have sent a plague, he could have just changed their minds and had them leave, right? But he doesn't because he wants Gideon to be involved in it. God's purposes are accomplished by God's people because he loves being with us, right? He chooses to accomplish his purposes in a way that involve us only because he loves us. My, my father-in-law is a hunter, or especially used to hunt more, but duck hunting. And so he probably hunted other things, but this story is about duck hunting, so that's why I said that. So he's, he would go duck hunting, and particularly when my wife was younger, we can wait, actually, yeah. Um, when she was like four or five, she loved to go with him. And let me just paint a picture of my four-year-old wife hunting. She um, wasn't exactly a killer, if, if you know what I mean. She didn't use a gun. She um, didn't want to kill birds. But um, she wanted to go. So my, my father-in-law would um, wake up, say, like 3 a.m., and lovingly, like, dress her for, um, for hunting. So that means, like, putting on all the layers of camo and, like, fumbling through all the nonsense and having a, a like, a puffy four-year-old little Katie with a bob haircut <laughs> waddling out to the duck blind. And then they drive hours out to the duck blind. And the, my, all my wife wanted to do, this is what she did, was she would just make a bed in the duck blind and sleep at the feet of her dad. She was not helping in the conquest of birds, she was not an effective killer. But her dad didn't care because her dad just wanted her with him. So here's a photo of my wife hunting. That's, that's a real photo of her. It's amazing. How would you not want that in your duck blind? So the point is that she didn't offer a lot in the hunt, right? And her dad didn't need her help, though I'm sure she helped a lot. You helped a lot. Her dad didn't need her help, but her dad just wanted her with him. This is the story, this is how God deals with Gideon, right? Gideon, it's not by Gideon's might that the Midianites are conquered at all. God wants Gideon to be with him. God wants us to be with him as he accomplishes his purpose. He's sovereign, he has the power to do whatever he wants, and yet in his goodness for us, he brings us along with him. And I think Gideon in this moment is realizing that the God of creation is on his side. Right? In Colossians 1, Paul says that in Christ, all things hold together. There's a sense in which, by the word of his power, Jesus is sustaining all of life, all of creation, holding together by his word. And then in Romans 8, Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love him. I think Gideon is having a moment where he's realizing the intersection of these two things, God's greatness and God's goodness on his behalf. That the God who can change the minds of Midianites and orchestrate conversations so minutely, is doing it on his behalf, and the intersection of God's greatness and God's goodness draws him to worship. How could he not fall down and worship the living God? So Gideon's response in verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. This is the God of creation working on my behalf, just for me. And that word 
in the Hebrew, worship means that he lay prostrate. He was flattened by it, by God's power and goodness. What a picture, right? Gideon face down, worshiping Yahweh in the middle of the enemy camp. Circumstances haven't changed, right? The battle still has to be fought. And yet, because God is good and gracious and powerful, face down in worship amidst his enemies. What a picture of Christian worship in a world where we're meant to be exiles, right? But our God is good and he's with us. And see, God is not just gracious, not, not merely great, not just good. He's all of these things. And Gideon is realizing he's all of these things to me. He's uniquely and gloriously all three of these things. And he's therefore uniquely and supremely worthy of our worship, wholeheartedly, fully surrendered. He's worthy of on our face in reverence worship. So Gideon's first response is he worships. The second is that he obeys, right? He moves just like God told him to. In verse, verse 15 still, he says, Gideon, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. It's the same words that God told him to, to, to do earlier. Now, after encountering the goodness and greatness and graciousness of God, Gideon moves and obeys. He obeys the original commandment from God because now his fear is gone. There's nothing to make him hesitant because this wonder-working God is on his side. There's a sense in which Gideon's coming from this experience and saying, if God can do that, we can fight this war. If God is that good and that great and he's fighting for us, then there's nothing to fear. Let's go. Let's go to battle. And what happens? They go and conquer. For the glory of God and for the good of these soldiers, they dominate without even lifting a sword. Read with me in verse 20. It says, uh, he divided... Where am I? Verse 20. Nope. Sorry, verse 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord sent every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Mohala by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Ashtar and from all of Manasseh and they pursued after Midian. The enemy is scattered. Remember how at the beginning of Gideon's story, he sends home the men who don't have a heart for the battle, who are afraid? When the battle is won, he sends out the word, and people from all those tribes come out and start to pursue the enemy. So this Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan, and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. People come out of their villages and chase down and kill the Midianite princes and retake the land. It's an epic victory, right? And unfortunately, it's not the end of the story. 
just unbelievable. And I, I'm not going to get too much into it because I don't want to steal all of Robert's sermon next week. But you know how Gideon's stories end? Gideon's story ends. If you turn the page in your Bible, you'll see that Gideon is falsely worshiping again. He's worshiping an idol. How? God has shown up for him in such a powerful way. How could it be that he would turn to false worship so shortly thereafter? And yet, guys, this is us, right? Oscillating between motivation and power and weakness, just, just back and forth, fired up and then cold. We need a hero who's not subject to the fickle motivations of the human heart. We need a real hero. Our story cannot be contingent on our motivation to fight. Because if it is, we'll only and always find failure. Thanks be to God that he has sent a real hero. See, Gideon is a type of Christ, meaning that he's a foreshadowing of the real conqueror, Jesus. So our hero series is meant to show that the heroes in the book of Judges are pointing forward to the one who will actually conquer, actually bring peace. And Gideon is one of those heroes. His story points forward to the real hero. See, Jesus faced a far more terrifying enemy. Far more terrifying than the Midianites and the Amalekites. And Gideon was afraid and reluctant, but Jesus set his face like flint as he went toward Jerusalem. Gideon was uncertain about whether God would protect him. Jesus was certain that God would give him over to die. He knew defeat was coming. And still he went into the valley to wage war against our enemies. And he was destroyed. And for two dark nights, it seemed as though all hope was lost. It seemed as though the purposes and power of God would be defeated. That sin and death would have the last say. As Jesus sat in the grave. But in rising from the grave, Jesus has conquered sin and death forever. Amen? In his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has sent out the word like a trumpet blast. That victory is sure and coming. See, just as Gideon calls to the sideline soldiers who left the battle before it started, so Jesus is calling us to participate in his victory. Our enemy is fleeing. He's wounded and running. And the victory is sure. Because Jesus has conquered. Our king is a conqueror. And he invites us, come wage the good warfare to the glory of God and for your own good. Come out of hiding and chase down the enemy. Take back the land. Stop sitting on the sidelines and come join the conquest. Give sin no quarter in your heart. We get to participate in a victory that was won without us even lifting a sword. Do you see that the cross and resurrection of Jesus are the greatest and most perfect manifestations of God's grace and greatness and goodness towards us? Grace means unmerited favor. How, how could we ever have deserved God to die in our place? It's the fullest manifestation of grace. God's greatness in dying and rising from the dead. It says the Spirit rose Jesus from the dead, conquering over sin and death. He said in his, in his ascension, he has disarmed the powers that are against us, breaking sin and death that has no power. That's a great victory. And in his goodness, you see, Jesus didn't die just in abstraction. He died for you and me. 
He paid for our sins. If God is that good and that great and he's fighting for us, there's nothing to fear. Because he has saved us, we have nothing to lose. So just like Gideon, we should offer our lives in worship and obedience, trusting that he's working for us. We sang this hymn. I was planning to talk about it, but um, I was planning to have to introduce uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, but you already know it. Let me just read again these, these two middle stanzas. It said, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, the, the king of angels. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus has conquered. And we get to live in the victory. You see, because God is good and great and gracious towards us, we can have hope that we actually can be sanctified. We can fight sin in our hearts knowing that victory is coming. In Philippians it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You realize, holiness, if you're in Christ, holiness is in your future. The sin that that so easily entangles that we don't feel like we always have hope that we'll be rid of. It is going to be gone. In Second Peter, Peter says that he has made us partakers of the divine nature. There's going to come a day when you are brilliantly holy, when sin has no more hold on you. And the same is true of worldly systems of sin. Jesus' kingdom is coming. He announced it when he was here on earth, and he promised that he's coming again to bring his kingdom in fullness. Systems of sin and injustice won't stand forever. Hope is in our future. So in light of the cross, in light of God's goodness and greatness and graciousness towards us, displayed in Christ Jesus, we can fight with victory that Christ has won. So how do we ensure, though, that this isn't just a momentary motivation? Right? How, do, how do you carry motivation from Sunday to Thursday or Saturday night? Recognizing that we're fickle, right? What do we do to sustain victory in our lives. I have three uh, suggestions for application from the text here. The first is, take God up on his offer. So look at how, remember how Gideon, Gideon was afraid and God offered him a way to be encouraged, right? So to the fearless, I'm mean, sorry, to the fearful and faithless of us, God has given us ways to be encouraged. He doesn't condemn us. He says, draw near and I'll strengthen you, right? Gideon could have refused to go down to the camp because it is a fearful thing to go down to the enemy camp at midnight, right? But in doing that, he got to see God's sovereign power working for him. So God has put in our lives ways to be encouraged, and we need to make, every oppor- make use of every opportunity to be encouraged, which means um, like reading our Bible, like committing to pray together. It literally could be as easy as setting an alarm on your phone that will remind you that Jesus has conquered sin, that will, that will remind you that Jesus actually offers victory. So the first encouragement is make use of every opportunity you can to remind yourself that victory is coming and that God has forgiven you and that his kingdom is in breaking. Because God knows that we easily forget. Like He knows that we're afraid, so he's provided reminders in his word. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is meant to point to the fact that God's kingdom is coming, that he's good, that he's working on our behalf. And so 
um, for the non-Christians in the room, if you don't yet know God, just understand here, be encouraged by the fact that Gideon doesn't have all this figured out, right? And I don't either. We're all figuring this out as we go. But trust that God has put things in your life to encourage you. He doesn't condemn your unbelief. He doesn't turn you away. He's actually provided ways for you to engage. So the invitation is to continue to engage, to read his word, to continue to press into some of your questions, see how God might show up. Make, every, make use of every opportunity to be encouraged. That's the first one. The second one is don't go alone. Right? When God sends Gideon into the camp, he says, grab your servant Pura and go, and you'll be encouraged. Given our weakness, given the fact that we are fickle and we turn from motivations very quickly, it would be wise of us to grab someone, look them in the eye, admit our brokenness, and say, you and I are going to seek encouragement from the Lord together. Because we can't fight sin in a persistent way. I keep turning to sin. Will you please help me? Encourage me. Remind me that Jesus has achieved victory on my behalf. Get your buddy, Pura. Get someone to seek encouragement with. So make use of every opportunity. Grab your buddy, Pura. And the third one is make some noise. Blow a trumpet. Because the truth is that you might be the way that God wants to encourage this community. You might be the way that we understand God's goodness and greatness and graciousness. And so whatever it is that God is doing in your life, make some noise. Bear witness about it. In in Isaiah, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Tell us. We need to hear it. Can you imagine, actually, the cultural implications for this community and for the valley at large if we became a people who were devoted to sharing all the good things that God is teaching us? Like, if, if as a church body, we, you came to Sunday, came, on church, came to church on Sunday, and everyone was just sharing, listen to what God did this week. Look how God encouraged me this week. That would be amazing. It would be so encouraging. And the valley would start to hear of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God, that victory is sure. They would see the hope that we see. So the third one is make some noise. This is what Gideon does, right? He goes back to the army and says, guys, God has given us victory. Let's step into this. And after that, Right? He announces it to the people who had run and not fought. He says, you can partake in this too. Tell the world that Jesus is king. Tell the world that there's hope, that sin doesn't have the last say, that death isn't the end of the story. So if you're not a Christian today, you need to hear this good news too because the world lies to us. The world tells us that sin is the end of the story, that death is it that injustice is just a reality that's never going away. But it's not true. Jesus offers hope. There's hope for this world. There's hope for us, even though we're sinners. Jesus offers freedom from sin for us. Jesus offers freedom from systems of oppression. He's bringing, he is surely bringing a hopeful future. So the three applications are make use of every opportunity to be encouraged. Don't go alone and make some noise. Share what God is doing to encourage us. If you are a Christian, this is a reminder. We're going to take communion out of recognition that Jesus has broken his body for us. When we see in this displayed God's graciousness, right? we didn't deserve it, and yet while we were still sinners, he died for us. God's greatness, he's overcome our enemies when we could not. And God's goodness, he did it for us, and we get to participate in it. And so we're going to take communion as a reminder of God, God's victory on our behalf to be strengthened for the journey to continue to fight. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you stay in your seat during this time. 
And I, I would invite you to, to pray and think about what it would look like to trust in Jesus' victory in your life, to place your hope in the victory that Jesus has earned. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Lord, we just thank you that you're strong even though we're weak, or that you fight our battles even when we're faithless and afraid and don't want to go into war. And God, we thank you that you, or we, yeah, we pray that you would strengthen us for the fight. Yeah, that you would encourage us by your victory. Make it really real to us, Lord, that your kingdom is coming. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.